We do have a new, a new member this morning, guys. You won't recognise him. His name's Paul Rees. Paul, can you just stand for us momentarily? This is, this is a new guy. Can we welcome the new guy? Yeah. Yeah. He's lost about 25 years in a single barber trip. <laughs> it is good to gather again as God's people. Last week was certainly a precious um, morning in our history, but today is too, and we get to gather as family around God's word and sing of his praises and examine his word. For those of you that are wondering as well, just by the way, about what is all this bread? We seem to have like bread everywhere when we're doing the Lord's Supper. In the basket, it's just normal bread, and in the little bit in the middle of your wine bit, that's gluten-free. For all those that are gluten-free, I'm so sorry. I tasted a bit, and even when it touched my lip, I felt sick. Um, but, so I'm sorry that that's your story. I will be praying for you with fresh vigor. But for all those that sometimes people are gluten-free, sometimes people actually need gluten, and the gluten-free doesn't work for them. And so that's why we do, do that. So please make sure you get the right one, and we trust that it serves you well. We obviously want everybody to be included when it comes to the Lord's Supper as best as we can. Um, it's our privilege and pleasure to do that for you. Today we're carrying on with our series in Exodus and we're looking through the Ten Commandments. And so turn with me please to Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. If you want a title for today's message, is that just me that's going, B? Okay. If we can stop it going, B? I don't know how to test it. Do I just keep going, beep, because we know that's going to happen in the message. I'm going to get excited. Something's going to happen, and then it's going to ring. And... Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. The title is God's Grand Design for Sexual Intimacy. You know, John Calvin once said, we owe to Scripture the same reverence that we owe to God. And it's so true. When we gather around God's Word. We need to understand this is God's Word. This is God speaking to us. And so when we sit under it, we sit under its authority speaking into our lives. And although chapter 20 verse 14 is only five words, it is packed with meaning. It is maybe small, but it is packed with punch. This is the Word of God. He says, You shall not commit Adultery. As he stands us around Mount Sinai and he begins to communicate to us as his children, that's his instruction, you shall not commit adultery. Let's pray. Oh Lord, as we gather around your word, we gather around your word with faith, with hope, and with a keen ear. Lord, we do owe to Scripture the same reverence we owe to you. And so, Lord, would we be sobered by the reality that you are addressing us this morning. You are preaching to us from your word. You're opening blind eyes. You're speaking to our hearts. You are caring for us and loving us and showing us much grace through your word. So, Lord, would we approach this with reverence and encouragement and a humble heart. And would it be used for your glory in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You know, I've had the privilege now of being a dad for the last 17 years of my life. As so last week, it was my 17th Father's Day, I guess. And it was precious. And there are many joyful things about being a father without a doubt. I remember a number of years ago on Father's Day, Lydia got me about 40 gifts. And they were all the same thing. They were all little cars that just said, I love you, Dad. And it was beautiful. It was really good. The only challenge was it was actually done on bits of paper that she had just scrunched together and then covered in sellotape. So I was there for like an hour just trying to get each one. And I remember it opening a few and she's like, oh, are you going to open the rest? I'm like, hey, I might save some for later. And she's like, oh, I want you to open the rest. I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm going to open the rest. And we're opening all these gifts. It's like, it's amazing. Just last week, as I told you, this was my gift off limb. Growing food, the Italian way. Yeah, I know. We are twinsies. We are twinsies. You could have two by the end of the day. Uh, it says here, growing through the Italian way, how to grow 70 plus fruit and veg in an Australian climate. I mean, just what I've been wondering about for years, how to do this. Um, 
So from here on in, um, uh, this, is, this, this guy's going to be me. I'm going to buy a red car and I'm just going to be doing fruit the Italian way and veg. And so when you come to our house and you're eating Italian fruit and veg, it's like, what can I say? It's Liam to thank you for that. And I love moments like that. He was so excited as he gave me it. And then you have to do what dads do. You go, oh, wow. Oh, just what I wanted, Liam. Thank you so much. And you think, what in the world is going on here? <laughs> But I love it. It's part of the fun of it. It's part of the fun of being a dad. And there are many, many precious moments that it is to be a dad. And my kids bring me much joy. And yet the truth is there are also difficult things about being a dad. Being a senior pastor of a church can have its challenges. Being a director for Sovereign Grace churches globally, serving emerging nations can have its challenges. By far the hardest thing I assess in my life is being a dad. It can be difficult. There can be hard things attached to it. And for, my, for mine personally, at least, at least for me, the hardest thing about being a dad, I think, is when you're encouraging your kids not to do something because you love them. And you know if you go ahead and do this, it's going to cause you harm. It's going to cause you difficulty. It's going to cause you pain. Please do not do this. And then, guess what? They go do it. And you look on and you think, oh my word, it's not an I told you so. It's just pain. I'm just sorry you did it. I'm sorry you didn't trust me because now you're living with the consequences and picking up the pieces of not having to listen to me as a dad who dearly loves you. And yet the truth is, I think each and every time we face that as a parent, I believe each and every time we get to experience something of how God feels about us. See, these Ten Commandments are written to us by a loving and kind Father. He sits us down, literally, as his kids, having saved us by his grace and says, Listen, I love you. I know your names. I know your frames. I know how you're made. I know how it's going to go well for you. And so I'm going to give you these commandments, an expression of my care for you. As we've seen by now, these commandments are the gracious path of life. God is trying to care for us as his children and saying, listen, I love you. I don't want to see you in pain or hurt or in anguish. So, so listen up. This is my instruction to you. And each and every time I think we get to experience something of how maybe the Lord then deals with these things. Maybe we succeed and we adhere to his word. I can imagine the joy then in his heart as he says, well, well done. But also the sorrow and grief when we reject his word, when we decide we have a better way. And then he looks on at a father who loves us and says, oh my, this is going to cause you pain now and difficulty. In anguish, the very thing I was trying to avoid for you. And my friends, until we understand that this is the tone and flavor of these commandments, they will never truly dazzle us. And they will never truly sing before our eyes in the way that I think they're designed to and the way that I think they should. And certainly for me, when it came to this seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, growing up in a Christian home, this one did not sing before my eyes, nor dazzle me. All my friends, 14, 15, 16, 17 years old, handing around pornographic magazines, that was my first introduction to the opposite sex in that way. You're like, my word, I had no idea what was going on. I was about 14, 15 years old. And then when my friends got to 16, 17 years old, they start sleeping with girls, and I'm thinking, this is what I'm thinking. I want to do that. That's what I'm thinking. And I started to think, why is it that God has kept something from me that is simply looking pretty darn amazing, and they're all enjoying it, and I'm not? Because I've got a God that tells me I can't, so what is this? I felt like I was missing out. Felt like I was looking over at the fence at the world and it looked pretty good out there and it didn't look that great here because here it just looked like abstinence and that didn't look too great. I wanted a bit of what they were enjoying. And I think the truth is if we're honest with the person that looks back at us in a mirror, we can all feel that at different times. Maybe God's ripping me off a bit here with these commands. Why can't I experience what these things would give me? But until we understand that actually these commandments are expression of his love, 
and grace and care as a loving and kind father. They were never dazzlers in the way they should. This is an expression of his care to you and to me. You shall not commit adultery. Well, today we have the opportunity to lean in and to learn from this text. And so I have three points that are going to be questions that I want to ask of the text. Number one, why is this command so important? Number two, what exactly does this command prohibit? And then number three, how should we apply this command today. And I trust as we examine these scriptures that we'll get our hand around it and understand more the gracious, kind, and merciful instruction of the Lord. So number one, why is this command so important? How did this command get into the big ten? You know, as God sort of ranks them, how on earth did this get into the top ten of all things that he tells us in love and mercy? Hey, do not do this. Well, we need to understand the reason why this gets into the Ten Commandments is because what God is doing here ultimately is protecting marriage. The reason why this command is so important is because, in a nutshell, marriage is a precious gift from God to be honored and protected at all costs. Marriage, that which God gives us, which is a gift from him. It didn't get designed by man or society. It got designed by God himself. And it's a precious gift from him, which we are to honor and protect at all times. Now, I need to take you on a bit of a theological journey so that you can understand how this all works. And where that theological journey begins is understanding that marriage was God's idea and not ours. All right, Australia did not have the monopoly in society to decide what marriage is. God decides what marriage is, and he did in Genesis chapter 2. Marriage wasn't society's idea, marriage was God's idea. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 24, this is what we read. It said, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now to the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not a helper fit for him. Thank the Lord for that. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon a man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, And hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. You see it? Marriage was God's idea. It's not our idea. It's not society's idea. It was God's idea. It was God's idea that he would take a man and a woman, and he would put them together for his glory, and he would take them and use them within the context of marriage, understanding that together they will now become one flesh. And it's the Apostle Paul that then picks up on exactly the same theme. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31 to 32, he's under the inspiration of God himself. He actually unpacks those verses and expounds on them. He unpacks Genesis 2, verse 24 and expounds on it. When he says, therefore, repeating what it says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he explains it. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. It's beautiful. Under the inspiration of God himself, Paul unpacks that, listen, this marriage thing that we've known for hundreds of years is designed by God. It's his grand design. 
And his grand design is that marriage between a man and a woman would be a picture, a living parable of Christ and the church. That as the man lays his life down to serve his bride, his wife, it would be a living parable of how Christ has laid his life down for his bride, the local church. And as the wife then, the bride, responds to her husband, submitting to him, having a disposition to follow him and help him, is a living parable and picture of the way, Christ, of the, way the church should be responding to Christ. No wonder then Paul says, this is profound. This is going to blow your socks off. But this is what marriage has all been about before the Lord. A wonderful, living parable and description of Christ and the church. Marriage was God's idea and not man's. And God arranged it then in his sovereignty that husbands and wives would covenant themselves to one another before him. They would literally make a vow. Maybe before a pastor, maybe before a magistrate, maybe before a registrar. It doesn't really matter. What is clear is biblically defined if all those vows are ultimately before the Lord. We read that in Matthew 19, verse 6. Again, Jesus has quoted Genesis 2, 24. And he says, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. What do you mean, let not man separate. What therefore God has joined together? I just went to a registrar. <laughs> no. When you made those vows to one another, when you made that covenant before one another, the God of heaven was watching. So what God has brought together, let no man separate. Husband and wife in God's sovereignty come together and they make a covenant to one another, they make vows to one another, and they got arranged it then that sexual intimacy would be the consummation of their marriage. The sign and the seal, if you will, that we are now one flesh. You are my bride. I'm with you. Tim Keller calls, calls sexual intimacy covenant cement. And I think that's such a helpful expression. When two people are intimate together, having made vows and covenant to one another, they consummate their marriage with covenant cement, a intimate and loving expression. I'm with you. I'm one flesh with you. I'm going to be something with you that I am not with any other person in the world. And God designed it that this consummation, this sexual intimacy, wouldn't just be there to be enjoyed, though it should be enjoyed. wouldn't just be there to ongoingly cement a marriage in a way that it should ongoingly cement a marriage, but also it would be the means through which he would, create the, uh, he would work through the creation mandate of Genesis 1 verse 28. This is the way God's called it to be. Genesis 1.28 says, And God blessed them, Adam and Eve, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. That was the mandate. You're a man, you're a woman, you've come together in marriage, I want you to enjoy sex, and guess what's going to happen? Boom! Children's going to happen. And that's how you're going to grow. That's how the nations are going to grow. And God has deliberately designed it, according to Malachi chapter 2, that as man and woman come together in a covenant relationship and they consummate their marriage with sex and children come, that that child or children then grow up in a stable home where they have a mom and dad that have covenanted to each other till death do us part. And the child grows up in that stability. You know, in Genesis chapter 1 and 22, all that is described. And what is also described, you must understand, is that God looked on at all that he had designed and made and said, it is good. Before sin came into the world, God looked on at all that he had designed and made, this is good before me. This is my grand design. My grand design is that marriage will be a gift from God and sexual intimacy will be a gift in that marriage covenant. And so why is this command so important? Well, it's so important because marriage is a precious gift from God to be honored and protected at all costs. Sexual intimacy was always designed to be in the marriage covenant and we are called to protect that and honor that at all costs. That's the whole groundwork and framework for this command. If you don't understand that, you won't understand it.
So number two, what exactly does this command prohibit? What exactly is involved here? You see, as with all good gifts that God gives us, guess what happens? Satan comes in and twists them and perverts them. Makes them something different to what God gives us. And unless I am profoundly mistaken, our society has profoundly twisted and perverted this one. It is no longer seen as an act, a gift for the marriage bed. It's been perverted in incredible ways on a global level. Kevin DeYoung in his wonderful commentary, The Ten Commandments, he says there is no relationship that can be as intimate, sweet, life-giving and joy-filled as the marital relationship. And no experience can be as intimate and powerful within that marriage relationship as sex. So, of course, the devil is going to go after sex and marriage. We should expect confusion, misunderstanding, perversion and pain. Not because sex and marriage are bad or not worth the trouble, but precisely because they are such good gifts. In all reality... God's best gifts are the ones most apt to be twisted and perverted by the world, the flesh, and the devil. You know, I read that this week and I just thought that's so helpful. You know, the gift that God has given us is most apt to be then perverted and twisted by the devil and made into something so different that promises so much but will not deliver as advertised. What God gave is a good gift. We pervert and twist. It's the work of the devil, the work of the flesh, and the work of our sin. And so what exactly does this command prohibit? Well, it actually prohibits three things. We need to understand all three things. Otherwise, we'll be missing out on exactly what this command prohibits. Number one, this command prohibits adultery as literally defined. I mean, it's as plain as day. Verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. Well, what is adultery literally defined? Well, adultery literally defined is someone who is married, taking part in sexual intercourse with someone they are not married to. That's what adultery is. Okay, so in a literal sense, it's someone who's married, sleeping with somebody they're not married to. Obviously, this command prohibits that. It tells us that that should not be even named among us as believers. It is abhorrent before the Lord. Sadly, that literal then translation is being used by people to say, See, I'm not committing adultery at all. We never got married. We just sleep together. So that should be fine. Homosexuality? No problem. We're not married. Don't worry about it. Really? Seriously? You think this doesn't prohibit that? First and foremostly then, this, this command prohibits adultery as literally defined, but, but there's more than that. It also prohibits, number two, all kinds, all kinds and versions of sexual immorality. All of them. Well, that changes things. And they're not my words, they're Jesus' words. See, Jesus has a very broad understanding of what this seventh commandment prohibited. He didn't think of it as just literal adultery. He knew this was broad before the Lord. And so in Mark chapter 7, verse 22 to 23, this is what Jesus says. These are his words. So any idea that Jesus doesn't talk much about this stuff, well, he does in my Bible. He says, for from within, out of the heart of man, Come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. To Jesus, these commands were very broad. And what he's talking about there is this. All these things defile a person. They cut you off from God. They are sin before the Lord. And in the same breath of mentioning adultery, he also mentions sensuality and sexual immorality. 
It's a huge statement before the Lord. You see, sexual immorality, the Greek word for sexual immorality is pornea. Sound familiar? It's where we get the word pornography from. And sexual immorality was very, very broad-reaching in everything that it contained within it. The very thing that Jesus says here, sexual immorality, pornea, it defiles a person. Well, it has very broad-reaching implications. James Edwards, in his commentary on Mark, where Jesus actually says that, he says, the word pornea can be found in Greek literature with reference to a variety of illicit sexual practices, including adultery, fornication, prostitution, and homosexuality. Listen. And in the Bible, it occurs for any sexual practice outside of marriage between a man and a woman. Full stop. Sexual immorality includes any sexual practice outside the covenanted marriage bed between a man and a woman. Everything is biblically defined outside of that sexual intimacy between husband and wife before the Lord defiles a person because it's all classed as sexual immorality in the Bible. No wonder then the Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. He says, Or oh, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Oh my gosh, how we need to hear those words today in this generation. Do not be deceived. Don't be duped. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. He's making it clear right up front. You are like this, many of you. Before you followed Jesus as your King and Savior and Lord, this was part of your story. But not anymore. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What a precious description. He's saying, listen, this is what some of you were like before you knew. But then you took Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you bowed the knee and you rose and you got up and you followed thee. And here's what he did in that moment. He washed you clean and he sanctified you and he justified you in the name of Jesus Christ. Isn't it precious? But it certainly doesn't say, listen, sexually immorality and idolatry and sleeping around. Listen, we all struggle with that, right? Let's keep going. But it's good, you know, Jesus is there. No, no. He said, this better be past tense for you guys. Because it has no place in the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived about that. Don't be duped by that. It's not the way it is. This command here in, in chapter 20, verse 14 it includes adultery, uh, adultery as literally defined. It includes all kinds and versions of sexual immorality. And number three, it includes adultery and sexual immorality of the heart. So in case you've been sitting there, like many people would be gathered round in the Sermon on the Mount thinking, oh, thank goodness, I've never committed adultery, never done anything like that. Bingo, another one, high five, haven't done it. Jesus then says this to you in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 to 28. He says, for have you not heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery? It's that command, right? But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So you make no mistake, Jesus therefore isn't saying, hey, listen, guys, if you're tempted to look at women, you may as well sleep with them. You know, it's the same thing. That's not what he's saying. But what he's saying, hey, listen, it isn't just the act with our body. The act with our eyes and our hearts is also defiling before the Lord. See, it's not a crime, then, to be handsome or beautiful. That's okay. It's okay to look at a woman or to look at a guy and say, listen, yeah, they're good looking. Praise God. That's all right. 
People do that to me all the time. I understand. I mean, my poor dear wife, she's only human. You know, she has to learn. It's not a crime to look at your wife and think, you are beautiful. The problem is when we're talking about people that are not our spouse, and we are just thinking they're beautiful. So we're in the mall. You're just hanging out in Westfield. You're not doing anything wrong. You're just in Westfield, and you notice there's a beautiful woman. Well, you don't need to look back seven times at a beautiful woman. You ain't thinking she's beautiful anymore. You're wanting something different. There are numerous opportunities to lust after people. And we need to be real that that is a challenge. It is a challenge for nearly every man I know. And increasingly, it's a challenge for women as well. It is wrong before the Lord. He tells us very clearly when we look at someone with lustful intent, we've already committed adultery with them in our heart. We've defiled ourselves and broken it before the Lord. Why? Because all sexual intimacy is only ever meant to be between husband and wife in covenant relationship, spending time together. Listen, any sexual practice outside of marriage is wrong before the Lord. And church, do not be deceived by that. If you are sleeping with somebody that you are not married to, you are without doubt defiling yourself before the Lord. But I'm in a committed relationship with him. Are you married? No. Then you're sinning before the Lord. You're committing sexual immorality. Living with somebody as a Christian that you are not married to is abhorrent before the Lord. It brings the gospel into disrepute. Sexual intimacy of any kind with somebody we're not married to is wrong. And that takes us all the way to pornography. Of course, pornography is rancid before the Lord because pornography in the entire industry is built on the premise of lusting after something that is not yours. And then receiving sexual gratification from that individual who you've never met, but you wish you could sleep with. It is wrong and is abhorrent before the Lord because marriage, the real home of sexual intimacy, is a precious gift from God that is meant to be honored and protected at all costs. And this is the home for sexual intimacy, not just for the Father's glory, but listen, church, for your good. He's not just trying to catch us out. And say, no, you become a Christian, I'm going to make this really hard for you. You're not going to be able to sleep with anybody anymore. It's going to be really hard. He's saying, listen, now you're a follower. Good, I can care for you now. All these different things will do you damage. So I want to care for you. So number three, how should we apply this command today? I mean, we live in... Such an overtly and over-sexualized society, don't we? We live in a society that is full on when it comes to sex. I mean, I remember when I was a kid and I was growing up in secondary school and I went to an all-boys school, so girls were less of a problem and it was just the kindness of the Lord to me. Until I was 16 and then girls started coming to school and you're like, whoa, what is this? Women. But I do remember hitting about 14, 15 and some of my friends bringing in porn- pornography. But it was hard to get hold of. You actually had to go to a shop. I'd actually have the embarrassment of paying for it, and then you'd bring it to class, and it just felt very different. It ain't the case now, is it? You can get it on your phone in your bedroom, and no one knows. It is a very difficult time to guard ourselves from sexual immorality. It's hard. And our society is engaged with sex totally different. Homosexuality is something that will be applauded, and anybody that doesn't applaud is a bigot. Really? Living together is the norm now. It's apparently wise. You just meant to help people move in then, or? You know, you walk through Westfield, and there are pictures of half-naked women on like the shop windows that, when I was growing up, was called soft porn, whereas now it's just called an advertisement in a shop. Society is making this very, very, very difficult. So, how then do we deal with this? Well, I can assure you, God has given us everything we need to do with this. 
He never, ever calls us to something and then says, well, listen, try your best. Probably won't be able to do it, but have a go. There were challenges in this era as well. You you wind the clock back thousands of years. Prostitution was the norm. You could go to a temple and sleep with a woman, no problem. Don't kid yourself that they didn't have temptations. They certainly did. That's why it's written. We have temptations to ourselves. So how how do we apply this commandment today? Well, three things that I want to seek to pastorally care for you in as best as I can. How do we overcome this sin? How do we run away from sexual immorality in our lives? Well, number one, we need to make a covenant with our eyes. That's where the story begins. The story doesn't begin in the bedroom. The story begins with our eyes. That's why Job in chapter 31 verse 1 says, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. I'm sure that covenant put him in really good step. Because it didn't start with his body. It started with his eyes. He was aware, listen, my eyes are the window to my soul. I'm not even going to look. Beautiful woman walks past me. She's beautiful. Thanks for playing. I'm keeping walking this way. I'm not even engaging. Because he made a covenant with his eyes. And and brothers and sisters, we need to understand if, if lust is a challenge in our lives, which I think it is for most people, The call of God on our lives, 1 Corinthians 6 verse 18, is to flee sexual immorality. It's to flee. It's an aggressive word. It's a strong word. It's a muscle up, guys. Go after this. Run away from it. There is a big difference between fleeing and flirting. Fleeing is running deliberately and strongly away from something, having made a covenant with my eyes that I'm not even going to engage with that. Not even going to engage. I think all too often we fail and we get addicted to pornography for some because we don't flee, we flirt. We think, oh, it's just a bit. Half a poison pill won't kill me. Oh, yeah, well. Flee sexual immorality is the call of God in our life. The call of our Father who loves us, looks us in our eyes and says, listen, you want to follow me? Wonderful. Run away from sexual immorality. Flee. Run for the hills. That begins, I think, not with our bodies. It begins with our eyes. So the first thing I think we should do, like Job, is make a covenant with our eyes. A commitment before the Lord. that Lord, I don't even want to look lustfully at a woman. Unless she's my wife. Then you can go for your life. But outside of that, it should have no place amongst us. Number two then, I think we need to make a custom-tailored, not Dave-tailored, but custom-tailored vow plan. The reason why it needs to be custom-tailored, I believe, It's because lust has a plan for your life that is custom-tailored. It's not a one-size-fits-all. Everybody's attracted to different things. There's different challenges and temptations in our lives. Lust has a wonderful plan for your life. It's fine to be aggressive with you. Don't think that it's just like morally neutral. No, no. It's coming after you. It wants to wreck your life. Marriage is one of the centerpieces of God's purpose in the world in creation. So it should not surprise us that Satan is pointing his finger on that very fundamental issue. Take a guy out, destroy a marriage. It's like a bomb goes off in our homes. One of the saddest things I have to deal with as a pastor I remember particularly a case in my old church, in Christchurch, when a guy was regularly committing adultery and he left his wife and I was there having to deal with the kids. And these kids had no idea. And they were 16 years old. And it was like somebody had put a bomb off in their home as you are just picking up the pieces of what this would mean now. We are called to flee sexual immorality and we need to make a custom-tailored plan to beat it and battle it because it has a custom-tailored plan for your life. Here's a couple of then questions that I want to encourage you to ask yourself, which is how you come up with a custom-tailored plan. Question one, where and when am I weakest and most tempted to sin in this area of my life? Where and when? Are you weakest? Think it through. You know, if you're weakest, oh, I'm really weak late at night when I've got the TV on. Okay, I've got an idea. Don't stay up late at night and watch the TV. You know, but you've got to think through 
When and where am I weakest? Well, I find whenever I go to the beach, I'm really tempted just to spend all the time looking at women. Okay, well, let's note that away. I'm aware that when I don't have any help on my computer, I'm staying up late, and then, oh, I suppose I click on things I shouldn't. All right, well, write it down. Where and when are you most tempted in this area? Are there places in the city, places in your life that you think, this is always a temptation when I go there? What times a day? Think through how lust is going after you. It has a perfect plan for your life. Go after it. Recognize what it is. And then number two, what then is my battle plan to fight this temptation? So where and when am I weakest and most tempted to sin in this area? Number two, what then is my battle plan to fight this temptation? Listen, no plan, you're being taken out. You are dead in the water. You need a plan. How are you going to actually take on this area of your life? How are you going to have to go after it? We are at war, sovereign grace. We need to understand that. When the alarm goes off on the old clock in the morning, it is a call to arms. It is a call to war. It's not just a, oh, it's time to get up. It's, it's a call to war. This is serious. Where and when are you weakest and what then is your battle plan to fight this temptation? You know, for me, in my home, there are certain places in the city that are totally innocuous places that I don't go. Why? Because when I go there, I am tempted to look around. And I'm a weak, red-blooded man. So I don't do it. If you're a lady in this church, if you've ever approached me about getting some time with me so I can counsel you, you will find that every single time I say to you, sure I can, my wife will be there. Because I never, ever meet with a woman by myself. Why? Because I don't want to. I want to be devoted to one woman. And I know that Satan will try and take me out in this area. And I'm vulnerable to that. So I am running far from it. I don't even give ladies lifts by themselves, which is sad if you drive past one and it's raining. You know, it's, you feel bad as you just look away, just keep driving. I'm so sorry. <laughs> but that's just a commitment I've made because I know for me personally, I'm vulnerable. And I'm going to run far from that so I can be devoted to this lady and give myself to this lady and be a one woman man for the rest of my life. You know, I think we have to own up as well and be real that the online world now is a significant challenge. So what's your plan with that? That's the reason why in our home we have a circle device. It's a little, it's funny, it's called circle, but it's actually a box. But it's a little box. And it actually monitors everything that comes into our house and what everybody's on at the time. And we do it not only to work out how long we're all on the internet, because before that we're like, hey, kids, we can all have half an hour. And they're like, yeah, I think I'm only 20 minutes. And you're like, it feels like four hours, guys. <laughs> It actually monitors how long, but it also monitors content. So you can't get on everything in our home. And for me personally and for all the pastors of our church, we're all on something called Covenant Eyes, which means if anybody clicks on something they shouldn't, all other pastors get ping on their computer and it tells them, hey, listen, uh, one of the guys is looking at this. You might want to check in. It is a, it is a godsend. It's a godsend because everybody's vulnerable. But what we've realized is, hey, we're vulnerable, and so we need to do something about it. What's your plan? What's your plan to deal with online media? Parents, one thing I would say to you is if you are letting your children have phones in their bedrooms, I love you, you are crazy. What are they going on? Do you realize they can punch in like one line and they will see incredibly explicit material for free? you aware of that? Are you monitoring what they're going on? Do you not think they're going to be tempted? I can assure you they are. And God's given them a gift. It's called mum and dad. To protect them. Get involved with them. And help train them through this issue. For the glory of the Lord. We need to think through where and when are we most weak and tempted. And then what then is my battle plan to fight this temptation? And then number three. Who can I enlist to encourage me? And hold me accountable in this. Here's the general philosophy. 
Lone rangers are dead rangers. If you're trying to run this one by yourself, it ain't going to go well for you because you're a sitting target. You're a duck lame in the water before you've even started. Who are you running with in your life? Who, who are the other brothers and sisters around you that are aware of what your struggles are specifically and encouraging you in that and holding you accountable in that so that you may flee sexual morality for the glory of the Lord? See, if we're serious about fleeing sexual immorality, then we need to have, I believe, a custom-tailored plan. We need to make a covenant with our eyes. We need to make a custom-tailored plan. And then number three, we need to cry out to God with all our might for his grace. And believe me, that is not just a number three tag-on line. If God doesn't help us in this, given the way society is today, we have had it. But what I can assure you is as you cry out to God for his grace, he will help you. He always does. Hebrews 4 verse 14 to 16 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I think we all need mercy and grace in this one, don't we? So we cry out to him and say, Lord, I understand you have been tempted just like I am. I need your help. Please help me. Please help me with this covenant with my eyes. Please help me to flee sexual immorality in my life. Please help me to battle the realities of lust in my life. My friends, these Ten Commandments are a gracious path to life. God is seeking to help you. They're the loving and kind instruction of a father who knows what will damage you, what will harm you, what will destroy you. See, sin, quite literally, it never delivers as advertised, does it? It's always vulnerable to false advertising. It promises so much. It allures us with so much. But what it never explains to us is as you eat of it and taste of it, it will come with nausea and vomiting. As Ravi Zacharias tells us, sin will take you further than you wanted to go, keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and cost you more than you wanted to pay. And so it will. And when it comes to sexual immorality, it will do all of the above. It will take you further than you wanted to go. It will keep you longer than you wanted to stay. And it will cost you way more, way more than you thought you were going to be paying at all. So God gives us these Ten Commandments and he says, this is how it will go well for you. Stick to these. This is my loving instruction for you. You know, maybe you're here then today and you are very aware of your sin right now. God's been doing a work as I've been talking on your heart and you realize this text is addressing me. Well, praise God that it's addressing you. And how kind of the Lord through the Holy Spirit to open your eyes to the reality that this is you. And you've been deceived in this. My friends, if you are very aware of your sin in this moment, I want you to understand there is always forgiveness at the cross. It's one of the scandals and glories of the cross, but it's true. Romans 4 verse 7 says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. What a precious and joyful reality when we put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Saviour. When we truly bow our knee and say, Lord, I'm in. I want to take you as Savior, and I want to receive you as my King. I'm going to follow you. It's very clear at that point we can also say there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Well, because as 1 John 1 verse 9 tells us, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a happy discovery and reality that is, don't you think? When we cry out to him and we say, Lord, I'm sorry, would you forgive me? He says, yeah, I will. In fact, I'll not only forgive you, I will clothe you in my righteousness afresh. And I will sing over you because I will see my son wrapped around you. 
Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. If you are aware of your sin, I want to encourage you, there's always forgiveness at the cross. And so run to him and receive his forgiveness. And then, my friends, I want to encourage you to rise and go forth and follow me. You will never be a perfect disciple. None of us will. We're all going to be battling sin all our lives. But the very fact that you're battling and genuinely seeking to put off the old self and run passionately with the new shows that you are a disciple. Not a perfect one, but truly a disciple. As a dependent on his grace, may this be our story. Sexual immorality, homosexuality, sensuality, adultery, it should not even be named among us as a practice. It should be talked about as something that we are resisting and running away from with all our might as his treasured possession and in a desire to bring glory to the Lord for him and indeed for our good. Let's pray. Lord, you are so caring towards us. And Lord, I want to thank you for the way you father us through these moments. Lord, as we gather around your word, we don't gather around someone who's irritated or angry or annoyed. We gather around your word with a father who says, I love you and I want the best for you. And for my glory then and your good, do not commit adultery. Lord, I pray that we would all have ears to hear this morning and hearts that attended to your word. Lord, help us. And Lord, where sin needs to be dealt with in our lives, would it be dealt with with humility and action? Lord, would we walk purely before you and would it all be for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen.